Um, we're in our fourth incision. We will actually hit our fifth incision next week. And for the record, those of you that uh, become weary of my desire to dig in too deep, that would be three, four, and five in three weeks. So I'm just saying. I'm, I'm moving so fast here, I'm uncomfortable. Um, and... Um, some excitement next week, or potentially some excitement next week. Incision five is on tithing, and since I had not, since I had not checked in with the uh, leaders of the church, I actually sent them an outline this week just to say this could be a major problem if you disagree with me. How do you feel about this? <laughs> and uh, I got back positive responses. I was I was pretty delighted. I don't want to steal my thunder as to why I felt the need to say that, but I'll, I'll share it with you next week and you'll understand. Um, so we can look forward to that if, if not this week's. Um, I don't want to spend too much time reviewing our last week together. We'll actually be a review of all six incision, incisions, but if you hadn't noticed the guy that I stole, Barrett, the guy that I stole this outline from, uh, at least the six incisions themselves, um, used eyes, you know, incision, not for incision, but eyes for the title of each of, uh, um, each of the six incisions. And this one is inaccurate views of God there at the top. Um, the disputation form itself, um, is listed there for you. The assertion is that you have wearied or burdened God when we get down to, uh, or Yahweh, uh, when we get down to actually studying it, we're going to do it a little bit of a different order than as it appears, um, just because I think it aids in, um, going through the text. Um, so don't be alarmed, right? It's, it's right there in its proper order at the top. Um, you have wearied or burdened the Lord with your words. Their question from Israel is, how have we wearied him? Um, they truly seem insensible to it, which is uh, a little shocking on one hand and uh, should be expected for those of us that uh, have a decent knowledge of uh, the Old and the New Testament alike. And therein really... Is the danger, I think, um, as we approach this text, where are we insensible to our inaccurate views of God? Where are we insensible to how we are burdening God with the exercise of our religion? Our religion, notice how I said that. Um, and what are the dangers associated with that? There's a lot that's said about that in the New Testament. Uh, there's also a lot said about that in the Old Testament, but I just want to point that danger out to you at the beginning so that you're kind of considering that as we go through this, right? I, I, don't, I don't know that I want to say it quite like this, but it cuts to the chase at least. I, I think your presupposition in coming to the Scriptures should almost always be, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with my thinking? Where can I be refined into Christ's image, Christ's thinking, Christ's truth better? And if you approach... This text, this disputation, uh, with that presupposition, you will be well served. Good morning. Um, Christ's response, um, or Yahweh's response, I'm sorry, uh, um, my biases are showing through there. They're true biases, but they're still showing through. Um, Christ's response is twofold. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? That, that's not an or like either or. 
it's an or as in a restatement of the prior one, okay? If, if you understand it as the first statement, that's fine, but if you're not quite getting it, let me give it to you the second way. It's not A or B. The implication of the disputation is that the messenger will come. The Lord will come, and I just wrote out the word that's actually used there in, in Hebrew, obviously transliterated, because the passage is a little confusing and references both John the Baptist as the messenger and Christ as the messenger of the new covenant, and so I just wanted to make clear that I'm switching who's being talked about there because the text, in fact, supports um, a, a distinction there, and we'll cover that in greater detail when we get there. The messenger will come, and while it's great that John the Baptist will come, that is not what we are to be holding our, our, uh, our hope out for. We care about the messenger of the covenant, the new covenant, and that is the Lord. He will come, and he will judge, and he will refine worship. And again, we will cover that in more detail. I say these things to say that I think that our predisposition... I keep talking about predispositions. Um, I think that our predisposition is just to consider eschatology in the sense that the Lord's going to come and he's going to save all of his people and he's going to judge all of the ones that are not his people. And the Lord will, in fact, do that. But that is too simplistic an eschatology. The New Testament is pretty clear that the Lord will come and he will first refine his own people. He will come to his own people. He will start there. And if the judgment is to start within his own, in, in the context of his own people... And I'm, I'm very closely paraphrasing several New Testament passages here, lest you think I'm making this up, right? I am synthesizing a few, but that's the only reason for using general statements instead of quoting them. He will come first in the context of his own people. And if there will be difficult judgment in the context of his own people, how much worse outside of the context of his own people? That's what the New Testament says over and over and over again. And it says it here as well. And so I just want to make sure that you're reading that as the Lord is speaking here. Yes, he's speaking in an Old Testament context, but there is nothing dissonant with the New Testament context or the New Testament covenant that we see uh, in the very next chapter of your Bible, right? That's an easy thing to say, even though there's about 400 years between them. Um, and as a matter of fact, what I love, what I've really enjoyed about Malachi is the unity between Malachi and for instance, specifically Luke, but um, but the Gospels in general. And you'll actually see that I lean on uh, several passages in Matthew fairly heavily uh, this morning. So there's that disputation. disputation. Um, I think we're just going to dive right in rather than me try to set some context. You guys have hopefully been paying attention in the last couple of weeks um, to the previous disputations, so we're just going to pick it up. As I suggested, we're going to start with the tail end of 17. Instead of starting with uh, the statement that you have wearied me, we're going to start with the question and Jesus' response, responses in particular. How have we wearied you? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh and he delights in them. And then I already explained why I uh, you know, put a box, red box around the oar there. By asking, where is the God of justice? Again, not two distinct statements, but two statements that are giving different perspectives on the same response. Um, there's a great summary, and we should just turn over there because it's a really good view of it. The people here that um, Malachi is speaking to, actually specifically uh, Christ is speaking to, or Yahweh is speaking to here, um, have a wrong response. They have inaccurate views of God based on their experiences. But we get a very similar 
kind of construct in Psalm 73, which I feel like you should be very familiar with now. It's been, I feel like uh, Pastor Gabe taught it from the pulpit this sometime this year. I can't remember exactly when, maybe at the beginning of the summer. Um, I know I did another session on it in our Psalms class, whenever that was, I can't remember now. Um, so I feel like this has been popping up a lot lately, but we're going to spend a little time here. Asaph is purportedly, right, Psalm of Asaph right there at the top. He's the author of this, and he starts off in a very similar tenor as to the, the, the response of the people here. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he starts, and I have this noted here, right? Asaph starts with what is true, and then he moves to how he feels or perceives his situation. And that, that, is, that is a right approach. You are not intended to approach the Lord in some sort of foolish stoicism. I'm going to repeat the words of the Lord because that's what I know is true, and it doesn't matter that it seems dissonant with my experiences. My heart is far from the Lord, but I'm going to tell him I love him. Right? He says that he gives his people peace, but all I see in my life is conflict and turmoil. And I'm going to act like it's not there. I'm never going to mention that in my prayers. I'm not going to wrestle with that in my study. Asaph does a great job here. I know what is true, and what is true is that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then he and he confesses what's true in his experience here, right? Which is, is, is not wrong in and of it. There's nothing wrong with saying that my experiences seem to call into question your truth. And I am struggling with that. But as for me... My foot had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. This is a guy that's supposed to be standing in the congregation of worshipers and leading those people in songs and recitation of scriptures. That, that's his job, right? And he's saying, my foot had almost slipped to the point where I can't go do that anymore. I can't proclaim a truth that I am not believing. That's what he means when he says, my foot had almost slipped there. And then he goes on to say, why? What, what's the struggle? Well, I'm envious of the arrogant. Right? When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, and then flipping forward 21 and 22, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, right? This is what's going on in his heart, despite the fact that his head is saying, I know that God is good to his people. And he will always um, overshadow the pure of heart with his goodness. I did a thing in small group, uh, my Thursday night small group this week, which is not in my notes, I'm sorry. I've got to hurry or I'll run out of time here. Um, I was really frustrated by a phrase in um, Mary's Magnificat. She comes to this place where she's going along and she's saying all the things that I would have expected her to say, getting the very, given the very unusual circumstances that, that have just occurred. And then she just flips and she goes, and your name is holy or holy is your name. She says, holy is your name. And then she goes on to some other things that I would have expected. And I thought, well, what was the point of that? And um, so I spent actually the, the whole week studying that the Lord's holiness and why it is Mary would have said that. And, and I won't bore you with all the details, but the long and short of it is I, I got a really great string of passages that just helped me understand God's holiness and why Mary, in the midst of this thing where she's praising the goodness of the Lord in the midst of her circumstances, which are whacked out, by the way, 14-year-old, 15, 14, 15, 16-year-old girl, fairly young, 
pregnant in a culture that stones women for getting pregnant out of wedlock, virgin, on top of all that, how does that possibly work, and recently, uh, I'll say put upon, but that sounds negative, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the words that are used there make it make it clear that it's that same Shekinah glory that surrounded the temple or Mount Sinai and scared everybody to death, right? That just came over her um, in her, or either in her or right after her discussion with Gabriel. And so I was really trying to understand that. And, and this isn't a perfect definition. If you want a good definition of holiness, it's just separated from sin and passionately pursuing the honor and glory of God. Look it up in any systematic theology book. You're going to find some permutation of those ideas. Separated from sin, passionately pursuing the honor and glory of God. Okay, how does that help me with Mary? Well, it didn't. I'll tell you what did help me. When the angels look at the Lord and call him holy in Isaiah 6, they talk about his glory filling the earth. I'm not going to forget my whole string of verses, but that's okay, because it's not really my main point. I just want to, I want to get to how important God's goodness is. That's really where I'm headed here, if you're wondering what, where I'm off to. I'm trying to get to how important is God's goodness in our relationship to him. And the answer is, it is of paramount of port importance. And so I assembled this, not because of this lesson, I assembled this list of scriptures. The angels see God, and they see that his glory fills all of the earth. And their response to that is, you are holy. And so I was like, okay, that leaves me with another problem. I was trying to figure out holy, and now I've got glory. Well, what's glory? And I had less of a good definition. I already knew what a definition of holy was, but I didn't have a great definition for glory. And then I run down to Mount Sinai, and Moses says, I want to see your glory. And we've already done this, just to make sure you're paying attention. What does God show him? His goodness. So the angels call him holy, because his glory fills the earth. And when Moses asks to see his glory, what he gets is his goodness. And there's so much more to it. I spent the entire hour and a half on Thursday night going through my list of scriptures and showing you that not only from the angel's perspective, but from people's perspective and then selected passages of scripture that keep putting those same three ideas together. It is impossible for you to say you know God unless you understand that it is his goodness, his, his burning goodness, his complete goodness, his total goodness to his people, by the way, which is also always in the scriptures associated with his goodness. It is his goodness to his people, lest you think it's just his goodness to himself or the universe or his image. It is all those things. <clears throat> and that's why it's called his glory. But it is inseparable from his goodness to his people. And when we begin to question his goodness to his people, we question the very nature of our God. We, we find ourselves in direct conflict with that which is most true. Not just about our God, but period. It is most true in all of nature. It is because all nature flows from him. It is most true about him. It is most true about our relationship with him. It is most true about what our relationship with him will be when the end, the end, finally arrives. 
and Asaph is wrestling with that, and so are the people in Malachi. Asaph comes at it the right way. The people in Malachi and those we find in the Gospels um, that did not listen to the warning in Malachi uh, apparently came at it the wrong way. Asaph had an accurate view of God and an accurate view of how he was struggling with that. And that's what I love about that. It wasn't just, oh, I'm, it's, it's fine. This is true and forget it. It's, this, is, this is true about God, but I'm envious of the wealthy and their prosperity in the midst of their wickedness. And I'm embittered when I think about all that I go through, and this is previous in the passage, all that I go through to honor you and the fact that they just spit in your face and they get what they want, and I'm pricked in my heart. Uh, You see the prosperity of the wicked. I won't go through every one of those bullets in that level of detail. You see the prosperity of the wicked in four through five. They're fat. They're sleek. They want for nothing. Everything's easy for them. They just do whatever they want, and they get whatever they want. And they shake their fist at God in the meantime. And the faithless people in Malachi, the faithless people, the betrayers, as we studied last week, according to Psalm 17, 15, calls them betrayers. They become pragmatic. What do I mean by pragmatic? Let's look at verse 10 real quick. Uh, I'm in the wrong song. I was like, that's not right, right? Therefore, his people turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. God's people watch the benefiting of the godless, the faithless ones, and they're like, what point is it in serving God? What I'm really after here is the goodness, and I do not appear to be getting it in God. So I'm going to go after it the way these other people do, because it works for them. Whatever works. Right? They become pragmatic. Just as a quick comment, I, I love that you're, you're exploring this, because uh, you know when you think about other religions, and like the ideas of karma, and you know... It, if I do good things, good things are going to happen. If you know, and 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 the truth is, is it's absolutely empirically never true <laughs> that you know. I mean, it does it happen sometimes? Yes, in completely random order, it does happen. <clears throat> uh, but you know, if you want to combat a lot of these false beliefs of people who are going to earn their salvation, then this is the right place to look. You know, so I actually really appreciate you unpacking this. Um, by the way, I rarely comment on statements that I just agree with, just so you know. It's not that I'm ignoring them. I'm just like, well, he said it, so <laughs> move on. I do that all the time. I don't respond, and I think, oh, I'm always concerned people are going to think, well, he didn't like what I said. He didn't interact with it. Well, I didn't interact with it because there was nothing else to be said. It was, okay. Um, so 10, uh, you know, they, they, the people turn back. Um, they see, right, verse 12, they see what the wicked do, always at ease, and how they increase in riches. And yet we see our own lives as being stricken and rebuked every morning, right? We, and, and this happens, I don't think you're supposed to talk about this, but I don't care anymore. But um, So I have to take a polygraph every few years for, for the kind of work I do. And they hook you up to this machine and you know they ask you questions. And you're supposed to say yes or no, but... you know. I feel like half the question shouldn't be answered yes or no. And inevitably, somebody gets mad at me. The polygrapher gets mad at me. 
and slams the machine off. And what is your problem? And they get all, I mean, they really do get spastic. It's all a stupid mind game. And uh, are you or are you not a good person? Well, no, I'm not. What do you mean you're not a good person? And, you know, and I, I, I work with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people to take this polygraph. And they're lying, cheating, swearing, fornicating, drunk. You know, I mean, and they sleep through their polygraph. And I hate them. I mean, I am nauseous every time I take them. And it's not because I have anything to confess. It's just hooked up to that seat. I, I cannot stop thinking about standing before the Lord. You know, and they ask you these dumb questions like, are you a good person? Well, no, you know, and I know that's my honest answer and I'm not going to change it, but I also know it's going to give them grief. And if I don't pass my polygraph, I kind of need that for my job. I guess less and less as I become more useless in my later part of my career. But uh, why did I tell you that? What was the point of that? I don't remember. Free story. Um, people, be, go ahead. I feel like the question is always like, what did I do to deserve X, Y, or Z, whether it's good or bad? And if you think of yourself as a good person, like, okay, this thing happened to me because I'm a good person, as opposed to, oh, this horrible thing happened to me because I'm a bad person? Like, how, how do you define good and bad in yourself? And are the things that are occurring to you a direct result of your actions or inactions or something else? Thank you. That's how I got there. Verse 14 says, rebuked every morning. And I think, you know, I, I spend a lot of time wrestling with my sin. Uh, and I've, I've realized that people's perception of me it's dishonest a lot of times. My own son's perception of me is dishonest. We were having a conversation about it last night, and I, I just stopped him. I said, so, you know, guys, you don't know how many mornings when I come downstairs, and you're like, Dad's up before the sun's up, studying his Bible. I'm downstairs with my head in my hand going, oh, Lord, why did I do those things? Why did I say those things? Why did I think those things? I feel like I can remember every sin from the time I was like three years old forward. And there's a few that were really dumb ones. They're, they're just really dumb ones. I mean, when I say dumb, if I told you what they are, you'd laugh at me like, why do you think about that? I don't know, but it bothers me. That I was a fool when I could have encouraged somebody. That I did nothing when I could have done something to be useful to somebody for the glory of the Lord. It bothers me a lot. And these other people, they don't care. There's no sweat. They're not down there. They're not up, first of all, in the morning doing the study. They're in bed sleeping. And they're certainly not with their head in their hands regretting themselves. That's why I told you that story about the polygraph. Everybody else flies through it. I'm like, oh. <laughs> What'd you say? I said not everybody. <laughs> um... So they become pragmatic, whatever works, right? Um, and, and you see that. I'm sorry, people. I, I'm not trying to be offensive, but you see it in the church. I'm going to approach the Lord the way I want to. This much religion, this much sacrifice, this much Bible reading, this much membership obligation, this much this. They become very pragmatic. This much religion works for me. It calms my heart and soothes my soul. But for the rest, I'm going to depend on 
You know, somebody's 10 steps to success. You see it in the teaching. You see it in our books that we read. You see it in the way we talk to each other. You see it in the way that we put the wisdom of the world next to the wisdom of the Lord, and we act like there's actually some accord between those two. If the world has any wisdom, just so you know, and I read a lot of like business strategy books and business books and organizational books and blah, blah, blah books, right? I read them because they have interesting things to say. But every single time I find a piece of wisdom in there that I want to hang my hat on, I, I almost always understand that it, it's right out of this thing that's in the scriptures. I feel like um, I've been... Uh of like almost like being So many things like that. They became pragmatic, then they just became skeptics, frankly. And you see that in 11 and 13. How can God know? He, he, doesn't know, he apparently doesn't know what these people do. His knowledge must be limited or, or something, right? There's some issue where God will allow sinful people to achieve the goodness that he promised to us while we are not getting it. They become skeptics in 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Right? It's in vain that I obey the commands of the Lord, that I discipline myself. Right? If I move forward to Pauline epistles. It doesn't matter. I became a skeptic. I honestly don't believe the Lord is that real or that close or that imminent or that transcendent or that holy or that righteous or that true or all of them or some mix of them. God's people, God's people, God's honoring people, not the betrayers, cling to right views of God. We saw that in the first uh, verse there in 73, and you see it in 15 through 17 as well. If I had said, right? So he, he really enumerates his experience and the things that he sees around himself, and he's really kind of saying, I, I feel like these other people that want to be pragmatic and want to be skeptical. But if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. If I'd let that be my testimony, that, that pragmatism, that skepticism, I would have betrayed the generations of your people. I would have diminished your glory. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It was hard. It was, it was, it was a struggle. It was a burden. You see, we'll see that word translated as burden in Malachi here. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. And the Lord was gracious to give him the truth in, in the remaining part there of 73. God's people cling to right views of God, and they find those right views right here. And when it's burdensome and wearisome, they cling to them, and they pray that the Holy Spirit would do the, 
the teaching and the revealing and the understanding that they need through those words. But it will not necessarily come easily. It seemed wearisome to him. Many of you, I think, I know I have, have struggled with the wearisomeness. The discord between the truth that you think you know, and I'm, I'm saying that as we experience it, right? We think we know that God is good and we think he's really good. Not like make up good. Not rainbows and unicorns good, but durably and substantially good. Both today and in the future. We cling to that in the midst of our suffering, our, our trials, our discipline, our experiences until he reveals it to us. And God's people walk in the truth, 23 through 28. Nevertheless, I am continually with with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Notice the change in that heart. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Verses, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. Right? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you have not memorized verses 25 and 26, do so. They will be one of those anchoring truths that you can hold on to when your heart is saying the exact opposite so loud that you can barely hear the truth. That is the way that God's people wrestle with their circumstances in light of God's truth. That is how you you engage that dynamic of God's covenant not seeming to map rightly onto our experiences and our world and our life. And it was important for me to belabor that to some degree, lest you you get into this quick, fairly quick study, a a short exchange of verses in Malachi and go, "Eh, just suck it up. Malachi is just telling them to suck it up. Well, he's not really. Right? This is how you wrestle. Psalm 73 is how you wrestle with those struggles in a way that pleases God and is honest to God and frankly honors God before God's people. There is a a testimony of glory for the Lord when you struggle with with God and with his truth like Psalm 73 does. And God is pleased to meet you in the midst of that. He is pleased to step into that. You honor him. You delight him in those things. Which is the opposite of how he speaks about the people in Malachi. Malachi. What's the historical context for this? What struggle are they facing? And just a quick exchange out of uh, the reference that you have there, uh, Peter Verhoff's uh, book on Malachi. They had returned from exile almost 100 years previous. The return was regarded as a miracle. Uh, this guy, Zerubbabel, was chosen to lead them, and he was called the signet ring of God. In other words, God's seal that he was with these people, right? And so they were really expecting something significant based on the way the Lord introduced Zerubbabel. There was rejoicing over the second temple and the restored sacrifices. There was a reconfirmation of the the covenant with the Lord. 
Um, and they expected the Messianic age to come. And the problem, if you will, um, there, although it's still a problem for us too, as much as we think we have it all figured out eschatologically, uh, there's really not enough meat there for us to spell it all out with a, uh, a great degree of detail. They were expecting the Messianic age to usher in a, a time of national sovereignty. Throw off Babylon, throw off Persia, conquer all the recent lands, gain something in excess of the Solomonic kingdom, which was an amazing kingdom, by the way. They were looking for that to happen, and it had not happened. The one that they expected to come and, and rule and reign and satisfy all the promises that they legitimately had, hadn't happened yet. And they were getting tired of waiting. They were still subject to Persian rule, even though it was light. It was insulting, and it was inconsistent with the promise. Instead of the promised land becoming a paradise, it was small. They were still having to rebuild it by the, the grit of their own work, scratching it out. And more recently, there had been uh, a heavy uh, drought word I'm looking for. It's in my notes. There'd been a heavy drought compounded by locusts. Um, and so the provision of the land was not there. Their religious activities were burdensome. This is all right out of Malachi pretty much, right? Why do we have to keep doing these things? That Isaiah 43 passage there is really interesting. The Lord says, I did not give you wearisome um, offerings or require wearisome sacrifices of you. He says it very specifically in there. But you treated them all as though they were a burden, that they were wearisome to you. Their religious activities have no experienced effect. In other words, Lord, we, we are doing what you're telling us to do, and we are not seeing any benefit from them. It, it's not good. Again, you see that in Malachi. And the priests and the people are violating the most sacred stipulations of the covenant for their own gain, and there is no visible retribution. It's a little quiet in Malachi, but you can see it there in that 2, 8, and 9 passage. Um, I didn't spend much time on this when we studied through it, but you have turned aside, he's talking to the priests here, but you have turned aside from the way, you have caused many to stumble by your instruction, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instructions. Partiality, right? I get something for it if I say certain things to you, and I benefit in some way if I say something different to you. Right? They were corrupting the most sacred stipulations of the covenant as priests because they gained something from it and there was no consequence, or at least none that could be seen. And in the midst of that kind of historical context, the people became pragmatic and skeptical. It's like that he says that they caused him to stumble, not to fall away because it's just a reminder that nobody can snap God's hand. <laughs> that, is, that is true. So what's the result of the people's response? What's, what's the result of their pragmatism and their skepticism? They have wearied God. They have, they have burdened God. 
So I have that in that first bullet, right? Literally, they have burdened Yahweh. Uh, that should be with an inaccurate, but with, uh, excuse me, our inaccurate. I, I missed the U somehow. With our inaccurate views of how um, God is supposed to meet our, our, our understanding of the covenant. You said you would be good, and this is how we're defining good, and you got to do it my way. And you got to do it when I need it to. Barrett, the guy I told you, he only has like a page and a half on this thing, but um, Barrett does make two interesting statements here. Dead formal religion breeds a security and carnal confidence that will sooner find fault with God than with self. I am justified in being angry or skeptical or pragmatic or even partially atheistic in my views because God has not met the standard of goodness that I expected of him. And so I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it my way. That is that is a sure result of dead formal religion. And another quote that I liked is, Faith knows that the prosperity of the wicked is only apparent and temporary. Faith knows that this life, even at its worst, is the best it will ever be for the ungodly, and that this life, even at its best, is the worst it will ever be for the godly. You got that? The worst things in life now are the best that the ungodly will ever experience. Now, they may be experiencing much better here on earth, but that is still the best that they will ever get in eternity. So it's the unbeliever that's living their best life now, is what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly right. That is exactly right. Um, and I, don't, I just don't have time to dig into that, but I, I just I will tell you now that and you know it, I'll just repeat it because you know it. If, if you are all involved in news, movies, media, social media, if, if, if you take a stream of information from the world outside the church and you receive it, you are being lied to. You are being lied to. Beautiful, attractive, successful people all over those data streams. Divorce, suicide, drug use, counseling, people constantly changing their bodies and their faces and their hair and their nails and their teeth. And I mean, this is a this is a world that is unhappy. Unhappy. But they're lying to you and telling you they're happy. Sin always hurts. I know it's a stupid statement. It's a kid statement. You say that to kids. Sin always hurts kid. What I mean is, if you don't do that, I'm going to spank you, right? Or whatever the case would be. Sin always hurts. And as you grow up, I wish somebody would just spank you and get it over with. I wish somebody would slug me in the face and have it be done with. It hurts long, and it hurts hard, and it hurts deep, and it often can't be fixed. Or at least not without some cost. Don't ever forget that. There's a truth you should hold on to. Actually, it is the truth that's talked about right in this passage. Um, three one switches, right? To we're we're now in the implication stage of this. 
Behold, I will send my messenger who will clear or, um, what's the word that's used here? Prepare. Uh, a better rendering of that would be clear. Open up the, the way before me. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I did give you all the scripture references here. Um, this, this is clearly um, about John the Baptist, and you get that from those gospel quotes. And it is clearly leading to Christ. So this first messenger, behold, I send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And then it says, and the Lord, whom you will seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the new covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. That second messenger is Christ. He is the messenger of the new covenant. So you just need to make sure that you disambiguate those two messengers in, the, in those couple of verses there. Or actually, it's that one verse there, right? And so I gave you a bunch of the scripture references that help you do that. Um, one more comment here. I, I love the way this connects with the New Testament. I, I feel like we're so used to just diving into the Gospels as like the beginning of the New Testament. And we, we mentally, I feel like we put this big divide between the old and the new. And so we dive in and we're like, oh, look, here's this new character, John the Baptist. And, and let's learn about him and then move forward. But if you don't understand all of the prophecy and all the promises and all the momentum leading up to John the Baptist, then, then there's no way for you to understand where he was going and what he was talking about, or there's no way for you to understand the importance of Christ as well. They are already at the top of the iceberg, and so much is below it. And I love the way this passage sets this all in here. God is coming to his people, and he's saying, you have an inaccurate view of our relationship, and I am going to fix it. I am going to fix it, by sending the messenger Elijah, John the Baptist, right? And he will come and prepare a way for the messenger of the new covenant that is going to address the, the break in covenant that we have under this old covenant. The impossibility of the old covenant. You are not meeting the stipulations. And for me to be a righteous and holy God, I cannot allow you to enjoy the benefits of that covenant. I will not allow you to enjoy the enjoy the benefits of those covenants. Let me show you what it's going to look like. Babylon. It's the same in the garden, by the way. Right? They broke the covenant. And he did not allow it. I don't know why we cannot get it through our heads. We are not allowed to be covenant breakers. Because he is holy in all that he does. He pursues his glory to the uttermost. And his glory is always his goodness. But it can't be good if he compromises. That's not good. That's partial. And he is not partial like the priests. So I don't need to belabor each of the verses and each of the words here. But I want you to see what the Lord is saying here. He's got... Through Malachi, he's come to his people and he's saying, yes, you are my people. Yes, I desire you to all be with me in covenant perfectly that I might pour out my blessings upon you. But you are not listening to me. You are not getting it. And I'm going to fix it. And I'm going to fix it through John the Baptist in Christ. And that's where we pick up. The, the whole point of John the Baptist in Christ are to let us know that we're not getting it. He came into a world that was not getting it. He spoke to a people that were not getting it. Paul and Peter and Luke and all the rest of them 
are trying to explain how we are not getting it to us now that we have the messenger of the new covenant. Uh, just, to, just to maybe add or build to that, that meta-narrative, right, that Malachi speaks 400 years before Christ comes, and in that following 400 years, they proceed to try and take back their independence by themselves. They spend 400 years in the Maccabean period revolting against any and everything that tries to get in their way. Um, and yet, their hearts are still hard, yet their hearts are still, you know, what they're, they're in their condition when Christ meets the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They have just ingrained themselves in that mindset that they were going to just do it themselves. That's right. Everything we see in Malachi is magnified, but by way of being pragmatic and skeptical and all the rest of that, is just magnified in the Gospels, what we find of the, the Jews in the Gospels. Second part of uh, 3.1 there, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. So I want you to notice that the Lord is coming to his temple. Right? He's coming to his people. And so I just wanted to draw out some of the key phrases in here, in this, uh, you know, the orange or yellow dash or whatever it is. He is the one whom his people seek, whom you seek is the, you know, is, is us, it's the people. This, this Lord, this messenger is the one we are waiting for. He's the one we're, 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 we're complaining about in Psalm 73. Why isn't the judge coming? Why isn't the goodness being poured out? Why isn't the new covenant happening the way we want? Why aren't we seeing the kingdom established in the way that we expect it? Well, Christ is the one. And so I've given you a bunch of verses there. He has always said that he will come suddenly, and that has not changed for us. He will come at a time that is unexpected. And, and I've given you a long list of verses there. And they're worth looking up, by the way. I, I, I just don't have the time. But these verses are very much worth looking up. Look them up. Use them as a, as a morning devotion, if you will. Or an evening devotion. I, I don't care, but look them up. He will come suddenly at a time unexpected. He will come to his temple. This is a feature of the Old and New Testament alike, and so I, I've given you a bunch of passages there. The Lord will come to his own household first. That is universal in the Scriptures. I, I said it already, I'll say it again, and those are the verses that I want you to look up to double-check me if you don't believe me. He is the messenger of the new covenant. This Lord, this is the Lord, not John the Baptist, the messenger of the new covenant. And then I've justified that statement um, with the verses that follow there. There's always been an expectation of this new covenant. What, what's my point there? My point is to say Asaph, the Jews in Malachi's time just got it wrong. They they heard the truth of the Lord, they lived in the context of their own experiences, and they decided, that's it, we're going to be pragmatic, we're going to be skeptical, we're going to do it our way. And even when Malachi comes and some of the other prophets come and warn them, they say, no way, and back to uh, Frank's comment, they, they just went deeper 
into the direction in the direction that they were headed instead of pulling up at all. There was no course correction. And by the time we meet them in the New Testament, we have this great word that didn't even exist in the Old Testament, by the way, called Pharisees, like the perfection of the pragmatic skepticist. I don't think that's a word. I think that's a word. Thank you. If you say it confidently, people will believe you. Um, Gotta own it, man. Pragmatic skeptic. Thank you. Wow. Delete that one, too. You have a lot of editing to do after these, don't you? Um, but, as a, you have the Sadducees that seem to be a lot more on the cynical side of things, where they're just like, we don't really know if there's a life after death, we don't believe in any of that. This is what's here and now, we're political, this is what we need to do. And you have the Pharisees that are like trying to take the law and like do the law to the point that they've ignored the fact that it was never about them trying to do the law to earn God's favor in the first place. You've got like two sides of the same point there. Yep. They did not meet God's people. Excuse me, they did not meet God's standard. And so they were outside the covenant. That was this whole thing, right? You, you must respond to these things to remain in my covenant. Because you have not remained in my covenant, I will not accept your offerings. I will not share my goodness with you. You will not see the promises satisfied, right? It, it's, it's fairly definitive. It's not fairly definitive. It is definitive. But even in Jeremiah, right, the, the Lord promised that he would come and, and, and make a new covenant. Well, what is that covenant and what does it address? And that's really what I was trying to get at here, right? We're, we're in a new covenant context. But I'm trying to just give you some idea of, of, of the grounding of that. I, I think it helps us understand the importance of clinging to that new covenant in, in new and fresh ways every day. Our hearts are constantly being deceived by our experiences and by our own sin into believing what is false about God, competing with what we know to be true about God. And when we respond to those things incorrectly, we remove ourselves from the goodness of the Lord. And that just cascades. That, that, that makes it worse and worse and worse, right? It just cascades. The new covenant was specifically intended to address this problem. Our covenant. The one that Christ gave to us. And you see here in Malachi what the Lord is going to do in that new covenant in these couple of passages that I've highlighted in 3.3. And he will purify the sons of Levi, or a priesthood, and refine them like gold and silver. right? That addresses the need of Malachi 2, 4, and 8 that we did earlier. What's wrong with the priesthood? What are they doing wrongly? Right? Inaccurate teaching, wrong sacrifices, teaching the wrong things to the people so that their blessing is is a curse. The Lord is going to address all that. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to Yahweh. We, We discussed that. What were the two types of offerings that were discussed in the previous incisions? Say again? Great, great offering. Yep, the, the fellowship offering or the offering of thanks that was poured out for the goodness of the Lord, right? 
that was the one that was very relational, you know, as we talk about Father, you know, God being our Father, right? That was that very relational, us responding to him. That was like Asaph saying, there is nothing on earth that I desire but you. That's the grain offering. I mean, those, those are not the same thing, but I'm, you know, those, those are in the same category of thought there. And the one that preceded that offering was what? The sin offering. The sin offering. That's exactly right. The atonement offering, right? The atonement offering. Um, And they will bring offerings in righteousness to Yahweh. Well, the sin offering, the atonement offering, fully handled, right, by Christ. How awesome is that? But the gratitude... The relational offering is still very much a part of the New Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That, that's not been removed. And he commands gratitude. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God, giving thanks in all things at all times. I just want to remind you that the Lord is coming again. It was a thing that the people in Malachi's time needed to hear. And when he comes, he will separate the sheep from the goats. And I want you to notice that both parties are surprised. The sheep go, what do you mean we did this for Christ? And he says, every time you did it in obedience to my word for one of mine, you did it as unto me. And when he gets to the goats and he says, you're condemned. I want no part of you. Depart from me. They're like, what do you mean we we persecuted you and and did these things, right? They're both surprised. You say, well, doesn't that mean we're all going to have to be surprised? I, I, I don't think so. Because the rest of the New Testament says you can know for sure. You can be confident that you are in Christ. But I'll tell you what will erode your confidence every day you will not be able to find that confidence if you stop where the people that Malachi is talking to do. You can have that confidence when you end where Asaph did in Psalm 73. When your experiences and all the hurt and frustration and and confusion and turmoil of it are taken and offered up to the Lord and put there and strapped at the base of the cross with the truth of the cross at the very top of it. And that's what you're lifting your eyes to. You're surrendering all the other part and you're holding to the truth part. That's confidence. That's confidence. For the sake of time, try to get you out of here a little earlier today. I'm just going to, I apologize, but I wrote it, so I'm going to read it. Um, I'm going to read that last paragraph to you just to try to put this in a little bit of big perspective. Genesis 3, 16 through 19, tell us about the curse of sin, the cost of sin that forever reveals to man their need of a savior because of their own participation in the curse. Right? That's the problem. I'm just highlighting the problem there at the beginning. Right? It's, it's right there at Genesis. It, it pervades through this whole book. And it results in an amazing need. Genesis 3, 
22 through 24 show that we have become exiles from the order and harmony or goodness of being in God's planned kingdom. He made uh, Eden wow, uh, for us to enjoy him in. He made the world for us to enjoy him in. He has constantly been making things for us to enjoy him in, and we have constantly defiled the covenant and been forced to be removed from that goodness. And we are now exiles in a cursed land. That's where we live. And it's important that we wake up every day and remember that's where we live, as exiles in a cursed land. Romans 8, 18 through 30, 30, why am I struggling? Romans 8, 18 through 32, put this entire experience in context, that we continue to groan under the curse, waiting to be returned to God's kingdom, where the curse is undone, but strengthened by God in the midst of that exile, to continue in our pain and labor. We are exiles from Eden. We are exiles in the cursed kingdom because we are citizens of God's kingdom. When Christ appears, he shall unroll the curse fully and my toil shall be no more. Does not promise to unwind the very curse that he placed on this world so that we might all be sick of it and turn our eyes to him. He does not promise to take the blessing of his curse. Go think about that sentence for a minute. He does not promise to take the blessing of the curse away from us. It would be inconsistent with his nature. He intends to leave it, that we might constantly turn our eyes to him. And he intends to satisfy all those that turn their eyes to him with the strength to go through the trial now and an unbelievable promise of blessing once the final day comes. I hope that you will not be living the life of a skeptic and a pragmatist. I was so worried about getting skeptic right, I forgot the first word. (laughs) I I hope skepticist better, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that you remember more of today's lesson than my screw-up. Evaluate your thinking. Consider your heart. Do not be, do not be like these people that have exercised formal religion because they've become pragmatic skeptics. Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives. Please help us to think about all of these things rightly and truthfully. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.